This program is paid for by Your Radio Doctor, LLC. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of Your Radio Doctor and their guests and do not reflect the opinions of WPHT or Odyssey. Your Radio Doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, products, physicians, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on Your Radio Doctor. Always consult your own physician. Today's program has been pre-recorded. I'm Lisa Thomas-Laurie. If you're on Medicare, I've got great news. Keystone 65 HMO plans from Independence Blue Cross have earned five stars. Medicare's highest rating for 2022. Some plans have no monthly premiums, no deductibles, and no co-pays for primary care visits and some prescription drugs. Don't wait. Visit ibxmedicare.com slash star. Every year, Medicare evaluates plans based on a five-star rating system. Keystone 65 offers HMO plans with a Medicare contract. Enrollment in Keystone 65 Medicare Advantage plans depends on contract renewal. This is a paid endorsement. Talk Radio 1210. WPHT, WPHT, HD, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia. From the Cherry Hill Volvo Studios, where relationships matter. Always live on the free Odyssey app. It's time for the Delaware Valley's first radio doctor. On call every Saturday afternoon at 5. This is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. Listen, 7 months or 10 months is an absolutely exceptional, exceptionally short time frame to produce this vaccine. Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Good evening and welcome to your radio doctor. I'm your host, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. This week we continue our two-part series on the kidney. Last week we learned about all the important functions of the kidney and various conditions that compare those processes. This week, our focus is on later stages of chronic kidney disease and when to consider dialysis and or a kidney transplant. It is our great fortune to welcome the return of Dr. Bob Benz. Dr. Robert L. Benz, professor of medicine at Sidney Kimmel Medical College at Thomas Jefferson University and at the Lankanal Institute of Medical Research. He's held several leadership positions at Lankanal and across the mainline health system. He's nationally recognized with awards for his excellent clinical care, his research, and outstanding teaching skills. And as I recall last week, by the power invested in me as your radio doctor, I crowned him King of Kidneys. Welcome back, King Bob. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> pleasure to be here with you, Mary. Bob, let's, uh, my, the pleasure is mine. Let's begin with a review of last week's comments. Your role as a nephrologist is to quantify any decrease in kidney function and look for a cause, which sometimes you don't find, but you distinguish chronic kidney disease as the presence of kidney damage or decrease in function that lasts for 90 days or longer, regardless of cause. And it's important to distinguish chronic kidney disease from acute kidney injury, which would be hours or days, which may be reversible. Would you say that's an important consideration? That's You're absolutely correct, Marianne. Uh, acute kidney injury, as we call it, we used to call it acute renal failure, uh, but acute kidney injury does not mean there's a physical injury to the kidney. It does, however, imply <clears throat> that it's of abrupt onset and of, uh, of a reversible nature, but it can progress to being longer than 90 days old, which would make it uh, chronic kidney disease. So what might bring that about, Bob? I I would guess severe dehydration or hemorrhage 
or if somebody has a really severe GI issue with vomiting and diarrhea, walk us through some of the presentations for an acute kidney injury. So acute kidney injury uh, is uh, often caused by volume depletion or what we call hypoperfusion. So there's a difference. Hypoperfusion means that there's not enough blood and fluid going through the, uh, the kidney or perfusing it. Often that's due to dehydration, such as gastroenteritis or a fever or somebody who's got a lot of diarrhea and not able to keep things down. But it could also be due to uh, blockages of the heart uh, with congestive heart failure, uh, not being able to pump enough blood through there, or even blockages of the arteries leading to the kidneys. Those would be the, the most common things. You can also have what we call post-obstructive, which would be something like an enlarged prostate in men or uh, an ovarian tumor uh, in women, something that is blocking uh, the, the normal flow of urine and so things back up. And then you can also have an acute inflammation uh, or insult to the kidney anatomy itself. Uh, one of the most common being called ATN or acute tubular necrosis and another uh, called acute interstitial nephritis. Certain drugs that we mentioned last uh, episode uh, can also do it most commonly. Those would be NSAIDs. That stands for non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, which would be things such as ibuprofen, Aleve, Motrin, Meloxicam, Celebrex, a number of categories other than acetaminophen um, and, uh, uh, and, and just because those are available over the counter does not mean they are safe, especially in higher doses. Mm -hmm. And one of the other conditions that I see as a GI doc, patients who have cirrhosis without a, a lot of uh, physiology and an explanation, that can upset fluid balance. And if the fluid's in the wrong direction, cause kidney damage, um, mm -hmm. chemotherapy, and synthetic cannabinoids with the big problem um, in America of all this influx of synthetic uh, narcotics um, and synthetic uh, cannabinoids. Are you seeing much of that? Uh, we're not seeing a lot of it. Uh, that would be something that would happen more in the hospital setting with other problems going on uh, at the same time, all usually of altered mental status or uh, that sort of thing. But anything that can drop the blood pressure, anything that can really alter the no normal, what we call homeostasis, which is the day-to-day -day, uh, stable pattern that bodies should have, can disrupt the flow uh, uh, to the kidney and therefore result in retention of waste products uh, that we see with kidney disease. Sure. So I wanted to bring up the causes of acute uh, kidney injury. And as you mentioned, the more common causes of chronic kidney disease are age itself, hypertension or high blood pressure, diabetes. I wanted to ask or take a little time today to ask what we know about COVID and kidney disease, because I've read that there's a disproportionate um, effect on patients with various types of kidney disease. They get until they're a little more vulnerable than those who don't have kidney disease. But it's not clear whether what's the chicken and what's the egg. Does COVID affect the kidney itself and then cause problems? Or does the uh, inflammatory response, the immune response to the virus cause issues with kidney function? 
Have we learned much well, in two excellent. and a half years? Yes, excellent question, uh, Marianne. The uh, and the answer is both ways. So having chronic kidney disease predisposes you to getting more severe COVID. Now, I'd like to just uh, say something that you already know, but for your audience that often gets confused on this, there's a difference between getting COVID and getting the severe symptoms and signs of COVID because vaccination uh, and, and all these other things are there to prevent us from getting serious side effects of COVID. COVID can land on anybody's mouth, nose, or eyes, and you therefore get, so to speak, infected with it. That's not so much what our major concern is. We'd rather nobody get it, but just like any other cold or virus or bacteria, you can get it. The, the vaccine doesn't protect you from that. The vaccine is intended to keep you from getting serious enough disease that you don't end up in the hospital, don't end up on a ventilator, don't end up uh, dead, and as you're pointing out, don't end up on dialysis because uh, because especially in the early and alpha forms of COVID, uh, kidney disease, especially acute kidney disease or acute superimposed on chronic kidney disease was very rampant. And we were having to do emergency dialysis treatments uh, in the hospital all the time. And this is uh, known nationally and internationally. So having chronic kidney disease predisposes it to you. Having uh, vaccination helps protect you. Um, and, uh, and having gotten COVID clinically, uh, especially if you're not protected, can lead to damage to the blood vessels and the kidney is basically a sieve of blood vessels. So it can make your kidneys worse to the point of what we call end stage kidney disease or temporarily bad enough for dialysis from which some people can recover. And I think you brought up a very important I'm point. Certain. You explained it so beautifully last week when the heart pumps out a volume of blood with every heartbeat, about 20%, did you say, goes through the kidneys to get That's filtered? Correct. And and so yes. the, the, the artery, the renal or the kidney artery, if that's inflamed from COVID, then less flow goes through and it's a domino effect. And I interrupted you, I didn't mean to. No, no, that's that's perfectly fine. Everything you're saying is obviously accurate. Um, in addition, the small downstream blood vessels get affected and can actually form little clots, just as pulmonary emboli and clots in the legs are more common with COVID. And a formal uh, reason that people used to get out of the hospital after the initial uh, COVID event and then end up back in the hospital or die later was due to clots forming throughout their body, the vascular mm -hmm. events, uh, and, uh, and then they would get clots to the lungs that we know is pulmonary emboli, but they would also get clots in their kidney vessels. So you can think of the kidney uh, as uh, basically a tree with the major trunk part being the artery leading to the kidney and then smaller and smaller branches and eventually even the leads all being smaller and smaller divisions of blood vessels uh, and those small ones can get uh, get clots in them. Mm -hmm. And last week you mentioned that the clinical picture, a lot of people have no symptoms at all uh, and they might on a routine set of labs at their yearly visit or maybe they're being checked prior to surgery for a hip fracture or something. 
that you find abnormal labs suggesting kidney disease, and you always, first impression, get an ultrasound of the kidneys to make sure they have two kidneys. I was really surprised when you said one in a thousand people are born with only one. Are there dietary restrictions for patients with chronic kidney disease? Because if sodium's affected and potassium, calcium, all those, what type of diet restrictions does a person with chronic kidney disease have to consider? So another great and complicated question. Uh, And the reason it's complicated is because when we say chronic kidney disease, uh, again, we've said there's a spectrum uh, uh, broken down into five stages, usually in categories or stages one, two, and uh, 3A. Um, So that would be people who have 45 to 90% kidney function left. Um, Those people don't typically require dietary restrictions except for the diseases that possibly led to the kidney disease in the first place, that being diabetes and hypertension. For the people that are more like 3B through 5, that is less than, let's say, 45, but certainly once you start getting to about 30% kidney function or left, then we need to restrict the sodium and the potassium in the diet as well as the phosphorus in the diet because these are excreted by the kidneys. And so if you don't have enough kidney function, quite frankly, it's like your drain and your sink being clogged with lots of toothpaste. Uh, It's not going to drain all the things that you put in the sink. Mm -hmm. And some of the uh, nutrients or I I guess elements that are usually excreted might be something like potassium. And if your potassium level gets too high, it could affect the rhythm of your heart. And if you retain phosphorus, you send out calcium and that causes bone disease or all kinds of issues. So let's take a little break and we'll be right back with more on kidney disease with Dr. Bob Benz. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. If you have a question for the medical mailbag, just send a note to doctor at yourradiodoctor.net. I'm Lisa Thomas-Laurie. If you're on Medicare, I've got great news. Keystone 65 HMO plans from Independence Blue Cross have earned five stars, Medicare's highest rating for 2022. Some plans have no monthly premiums, no deductibles, and no co-pays for primary care visits and some prescription drugs. Don't wait. Visit ibxmedicare.com slash star. Every year, Medicare evaluates plans based on a five-star rating system. Keystone 65 offers HMO plans with a Medicare contract. Enrollment in Keystone 65 Medicare Advantage plans depends on contract renewal. This is a paid endorsement. When we ask questions, we make sure they're the big ones. Like, how can the healthcare industry earn the trust of patients? And what if your health outcomes and access to care weren't defined by your skin color, sexuality, gender, or zip code? At Genentech, we're removing barriers and partnering across the medical community to make clinical research as diverse as the world we serve to ensure communities have access to healthcare. Learn how we are working to make healthcare more equitable at gene.com slash askbiggerquestions. back to your radio doctor. Bob Benz, you know so much about the kidneys. We were talking about uh, restrictions in the diet when a patient has known kidney disease. They have to be careful with salt intake, manage their fluid as their kidney function declines in the later stages. What about protein? We used to be taught to restrict protein intake because if that's retained, a person could become uh, toxic. Yes? Not anymore? Uh, so that is that is something that we used to do. We no longer do that uh, for two main reasons. But let me give a little bit of background. When you eat a high-protein meal, your kidneys actually hyperfilter. That is, they 
overwork. You might think, well, that sounds like a good thing. But, but when the kidneys are insufficient in terms of the amount of tissue that they have left, then they also try to hyperfilter the remaining uh, good Samaritan filtering units of the kidneys basically overwork. And what we learned over time was that that overworking or hyperfiltering leads to scarring, premature burnout of the remaining kidney tissue. So it's a vicious cycle in that sense. And, uh, and so based on that, that proteins uh, will increase your uh, filtration, um, low protein diets were actually prescribed to try to protect and take the load off the kidneys. Um, we found out that that in a, in a large uh, uh, NIH study known as the, uh, uh, well, it was a study on, on kidney disease uh, and, uh, and protein restriction, and it really did not help. Um, but what did help was that we came up with what's called ACE inhibitors and ARBs. These are classes of medicines that most chronic kidney patients will be on unless they have a reason not to be um, or have too advanced disease. And it does the same thing as the intended low protein diet did. We found the low protein diet, all it did was really make you make become malnourished. Um, mm. Whereas the ACE inhibitors and the ARBs, things like lisinopril and losartan, uh, uh, just as examples, and naloprol. Um, these are medicines that help take the load off of the kidneys and prevent them from hyperfiltering. And so that is what we use now. Uh, we do not encourage high-protein diets, uh, but we do not advise low-protein diets because of the threat of malnutrition. Mm -hmm. We make a good point. So a patient has declining function and you watch them gradually what options do you present as a person gets to that those later stages, stage four, stage five, Bob? Okay, so uh, and this is where most of our concern and focus is on people who have uh, stages four and five uh, disease. Let me say one last uh, connecting bridge to the ACE inhibitors and the ARB medicines because they take the load off of the kidneys and prevent them from hyperfiltering, which leads to premature burnout of the remaining kidney tissue, I have my patients hold their ACE inhibitor or ARB medication at least one day prior to taking their lab test for me so that I can tell them what their true GFR or creatinine or kidney status really is. And then I have them go right back on it immediately. So, uh, so that is something that I do. It does not necessarily mean that everybody does that, but it may be a way for people who find their kidneys are getting worse, or especially if it correlated with recently going on one of these medications that they should consider checking their, their blood work, um, after they've held the medicine for a, a day or two and hydrated really well. Uh, let's get on to stage four and five then. So stage four is really defined as less than 30% kidney function left. Uh, and stage five is less than 15% kidney function mm. left. So obviously that's not a good amount. Nobody ever came home to their mom and said, mom, I got a 29 on my, on my test. You know, mm. um, we recommend, and the national guidelines, uh, are pretty much that, uh, dialysis would start when someone has less than 10% kidney function left. Now that can vary because, if the person is older and not having many symptoms, then we may 
play that day by day, so to speak, or lab test by lab test as to when best to start. On the other hand, if somebody has more than 10% kidney function or GFR, then we may say to them, uh, you're having loss of appetite, you're having a bad taste in your mouth, what we call dysgeusia, you're having uh, twitching, you're having a lot of swelling or what we call edema, those types of symptoms, your heart failure is getting worse. Um, those could all be indications to start dialysis even sooner than the, uh, than the level of 10 or less. So one thing I definitely like to do is to tell people, uh, my patients, how their level of kidney function is relative to someone who would need a transplant or dialysis. And we'll, I know we'll get into transplant in a bit. But at when when the patient is at lower levels of 3B or level 4, um, we will start to educate them about their options just in case they get all the way to stage 5. Uh, and so we start telling them about different types of dialysis and, uh, and about transplantation. When you get to a level of a GFR of 20% kidney function left, you can actually go on the transplant list. You, you will not get a transplant because your kidney function is too good at that level, but you can start getting seniority or loyalty points, so to speak, for being on the list. Um, and so we try to get such people you know, uh, on that list as early as possible. It used to be you had to be on dialysis in order to uh, really get considered for a kidney transplant, and uh, and in recent years we've we've changed it to try to get people on the list earlier. Again, I want to emphasize going on with a twenty percent kidney function, you will not get a kidney transplanted into you, but you will be on the list to be uh, ahead of people who wait longer or new people coming onto the list. So just to recap, I just want to say that um, if a person's holding and they're stable at somewhere between 20 and 30 percent and the ACE inhibitors are doing their job and and uh, they're, you're managing them and they're, it's still a good idea for that person to talk things over with you because let's say they hope to get a kidney transplant if they're, or let's say they get a superimposed problem like sepsis uh, infection in their bloodstream that, that brings them down. They have acute injury on top of their chronic disease or they get COVID and something makes their function fall precipitously. They're already, they've already had the conversation. They've thought about it. Uh, and even if they don't have acute on top of chronic, um, they might enlist family members to get checked to see if they're matches. I mean, it's, it's a pretty big process, which we could talk about later, but it's so wise of you. I mean, you've done this for a long time that it's not something you decide upon quickly. There are different types of dialysis. Yes. So uh, you're spot on, Marianne, and the, uh, the process is initially complicated and can be a bit overwhelming for people. So we have a number of national Sure. educational programs going on now uh, where in addition to the doctor spending the time educating people about terms and physiology and the implications uh, of what may come uh, down the road that we uh, that we have other uh, very experienced uh, nurses nurse educators and people who have been specifically trained to uh, to teach things and with audiovisual aids that help us have a deeper conversation 
with the patient when we see them in the office. And these services are typically provided sure. at no cost. Uh, and, and the idea is that an educated patient will understand things better and make better decisions. Now, when we have, when we sure. have, and make and be more committed because absolutely. Sorry, just that they'd be more committed because they've helped make the yeah, decision. Yeah, and less part. fearful of the process. Like anything else, um, you know, a vacuum of information just feeds fear and anxiety. So the more you can answer everybody's sure. questions, the better. And I always tell my patients, you're going to have, you know, your your sort of uh, doctor's degree the hard way uh, by the time we're uh, we're good. Mm. Uh, you know, a good team, uh, because you will know all these things and your questions will have been asked and answered. So I think when people think of dialysis, Bob, they realize that a shunt or access is put in their arm, artery vein, and that's how you filter their blood with the machine. A lot of people don't realize that there's another way to dialyze peritoneal dialysis. Can you explain the two types of dialysis? Absolutely. So part of our process is to make patients aware of their options and that even if they never need it, they get a good education about it. Um, so uh, one way uh, is through the abdomen, uh, right around uh, where the belly button is, but not quite at the same location, where a tube is put in called a peritoneal dialysis catheter. Any type of dialysis is the same, and then I'll get into these in greater detail uh, with you subsequently. But, uh, but the idea of dialysis is that, that it is a way to artificially cleanse the bloodstream of the waste products that would normally be cleared by the kidneys. It doesn't make your kidneys better. It doesn't make your kidney function worse. It does the job of dialysis. So, so when your audience thinks of dialysis, um, what they should be thinking is this is a way of doing the job of my kidneys when my kidneys fail. And I'll say one thing, it, it usually incites fear or anxiety and people like, Oh my gosh, need dialysis. Mm -hmm. I really don't want dialysis. My approach to it is to say, I want you to imagine that you came to me with kidney failure and I had to tell you there is no treatment at all. Your first reaction would be, Oh my God, there's gotta be something you can do. And I would say to you, nope, there's nothing. And you say, well, well, think, there must be something, something people are working on. And now let's just imagine, I said, well, you know, there is this thing, dialysis, that can keep you alive for decades um, and, uh, and, and do the function of your kidneys. Looking at it that way, you would say to me, oh, thank God, talk, tell me more about dialysis. And so... As you mentioned, you can put a small catheter through the skin, through the muscle, into the abdominal cavity, and fluids exchange without a lot of detail. That's one way to purify and, and remove uh, waste. Or uh, you picture somebody in a dialysis chair, and you connect the machine to their bloodstream through access in their arm. I guess the hemodialysis would commit the person to being at a center three times a week. But if they use the catheter in the abdomen, they can do it at home. Let's pick up after the break, and we'll be right back after this message. Today's edition of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross, can be enjoyed anytime, anywhere, at your convenience. Just download the Odyssey app and search Your Radio Doctor. It's health education on demand. 
I'm Lisa Thomas-Laurie. If you're on Medicare, I've got great news. Keystone 65 HMO plans from Independence Blue Cross have earned five stars, Medicare's highest rating for 2022. Some plans have no monthly premiums, no deductibles, and no co-pays for primary care visits and some prescription drugs. Don't wait. Visit ibxmedicare.com star. Every year, Medicare evaluates plans based on a five-star rating system. Keystone 65 offers HMO plans with a Medicare contract. Enrollment in Keystone 65 Medicare Advantage plans depends on contract renewal. This is a paid endorsement. When you have orthopedic issues, you need a physician who eats, sleeps, and breathes orthopedics. You need an exceptionally specialized Rothman orthopedics physician. They not only specialize in orthopedics, each Rothman physician only focuses on one area of the body, which means you can have confidence that you can get past pain and be what you were. Schedule conveniently online at RothmanOrtho.com. That's RothmanOrtho.com. When we ask questions... We make sure they're the big ones, like when it comes to diseases. Can we strive to treat, prevent, and even reverse them? And how can we make healthcare more effective and more affordable? These are the types of questions that can help impact the lives of so many patients, that help push the boundaries of innovation and healthcare for all communities. At Genentech, we are the pioneers of the biotech industry, tackling some of the biggest questions in healthcare. Learn more at gene.com slash askbiggerquestions. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, now Saturday afternoons at 5, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. This program is paid for by Your Radio Doctor, LLC. Welcome back to Your Radio Doctor. We're here with Dr. Bob Benz from Mainline Health. Bob, let's complete our conversation about the different types of dialysis because people have two types in their mind, but there are it's more nuanced than that, and I think that will make people... Uh, happy to know that there are other options. Right. So the, the biggest categories, Marianne, are whether you get dialysis at home or what we call in-center, where other people are going through dialysis. And at home, there's two options. The one we just talked about called PD or peritoneal dialysis, where the patient uh, literally has a machine by their bedside at home and fluid uh, from large five-liter bags or two-liter bags um, is infused through a tubing that goes near the belly button through the into the what we call the peritoneal cavity, um, which is the abdominal cavity, uh, and and therefore the blood vessels of the peritoneum or the abdomen act like a dialysis uh, filter. So uh, so we can teach people to do that within a couple of days. They can do it at home. Uh, you don't have to be in the best of shape to do it. And you come and see your nephrologist once a month to see how things are going along with a team of nurses, social worker, and dietitian. The other form is called hemodialysis, and hemo means blood. And before you can start on hemodialysis, you have to have a way to access your bloodstream by putting needles into the bloodstream, just like you were giving a blood sample, except these are larger needles, and two of them are put in, one to draw blood out of your bloodstream and through the artificial filter that cleanses it and and continuously returns the blood through the second needle back into your blood vessel. So it's a sterile, what we call extracorporeal, meaning outside of the body loop that's going on. The, The process itself is painless. Now, the insertion of the needles can be like any insertion of the needles in terms of temporary discomfort, but the dialysis process itself is painless. And it goes on for typically four hours, three times a week. 
Now, there is a type of machine that you can do home hemodialysis for uh, that you are specially trained for, and you would need somebody else at home just in case a needle came out and you got in trouble. Uh, but, but you can uh, have the home hemodialysis, which you would do three to four times per week. Uh, you may do it for a shorter period of time because you can do it more often uh, and actually leads to better control of blood pressure and fluid and, and some of the other things we talked about like phosphorus and potassium. The most common type, however, is called in-center hemodialysis. And in order to get that done, just like at home dialysis, uh, you need to have what's called an access, which means access to your bloodstream. And the most common and preferred way is called a fistula. In a fistula, the uh, surgical uh, specialist who puts these in connects your artery and vein together and your and your vein actually becomes uh, like a super vein. It becomes enlarged, looks sort of like a straw or a night crawler under your skin, so to speak, uh, and gives you more access. Excuse me. Pay no attention to that. Uh, gives you gives you better access to the blood vessel without any artificial synthetic uh, piece of material in you. A graft, on the other hand, is where a, uh, a, a straw-like structure is placed between your artery and your vein. And the purpose of that is usually people who don't have big enough blood vessels for a fistula. But you would come to a dialysis unit where there would be loads of other people, teams of nurses, the doctors uh, come by, um, and, uh, and there are technicians as well who would put the needles in you and you, you sit in a chair and you either watch TV or you read. I have had members of the Philadelphia Orchestra who, uh, who are on dialysis that actually uh, are going through their scores of music. I have teachers who grade their students uh, tests. I've had uh, lawyers who are working on cases. So, uh, or you can sleep and watch TV. Uh, up to you nowadays, you know, you can do Wordle and Quirtle and all that. As well. well, it's it's good for people to realize that there are so many options because, uh, you know, I would think it would be a comfort to go to a center and the nurses and the doctors are overseeing everything. But if, if you can train people to do uh, do it at home, then if they want to take it with them and go visit their son or daughter two hours away and come back, it gives them a little independence. Bob, I want to spend some time on. Tr and they can even travel with the, and they can even travel with the equipment. Right. Yeah. Oh, I see. Sure. To other places. Um, right. Transplants. I was reading up on the history of kidney transplants. The first one is 1902 from dog to dog. And it lasted a couple yes. of days. It's incredible. So the first successful human one, uh, probably in 1954, identical twins, and the, it lasted eight years. I was bowled over, and that led to the Nobel Prize for that physician in 1960. But now we're even and Joseph. Yes. Um, so when do you decide? I guess it's uh, as you've already mentioned, patient centric. The patient and you and the family have a discussion, um, and if a kidney is available. And let's talk about the different type of transplants because it can be from a, a deceased donor or it can be from a live donor. I've had a family member uh, have the gift of life from a total stranger, a live donor, and it's 13 years already. It's incredible what we can do now. So let's talk about the choices and maybe the medications that, the, the, um, that prevent rejection. 
Great. So when we are educating patients about their options, one is kidney transplant. Now, I want to be clear, we only transplant one kidney into a patient. And as I've said before, one in a thousand people are born with only one kidney, and you can get by perfectly well for, de for decades or longer uh, with one kidney. Uh, so you don't need two kidneys um, to do that. Uh, and uh, the... <laughs> Uh, and the uh, kidney function is perfectly adequate with, uh, with just that. Now, you can get a transplant, as you mentioned, uh, Marianne, from a deceased donor. That would be somebody who has technically died but whose heart and lungs are still being maintained. Uh, or you can get it from a, a, living re, uh, a living related donor, that is somebody in a family member who has similar biology and immunology to you to keep you from rejecting it as much. But you can also get it from somebody who is not related to you. And as you mentioned, what you called an altruistic donor, that is somebody who is, uh, uh, who is not related to you uh, at all, but is a match for you. But miraculously, in recent years, what we have is called chain, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, chain or paired donation as well. And what that means is the following. Let's just say that I have kidney failure and you being a good friend and colleague say, uh, Bob, I'll be happy to donate a kidney to you. But when you go to get tested, they say, well, Marianne, you're really not, you don't have the same blood type. You don't have the same, what we call antigen matches. And uh, this isn't going to work out. What the present systems allow is you say, uh, they would say it to you, but um, can I get, how about if I give my kidney to somebody I'm compatible with and that person's uh, kidney donor will give it to Bob. Now, we have done this with uh, a list of, uh, at Mainline Health, a, a list of over 12 people long. It's been done, I believe, with over 20 people long. So that is, and all across the country. So what happens is somebody in North Carolina, a donor gives it to somebody in Kansas, person in Kansas is donating it to somebody in Chicago, the person in Chicago is, uh, is sending it and donating it to the person at Philadelphia. And it's, and typically they're all done the same day so that nobody really backs out, uh, because obviously that would not be fair, uh, and could be emotionally crippling for, for somebody whose donor gave sure kidney to somebody else. So you try to do it in the same day and the same starting period, but that's not always feasible. And so there is many times a matter of trust as well. Um, and it may be that somebody is ready for their transplant at a time when another recipient is not. So that could also uh, play with the schedule. But, but that's the miracle stuff that we've got going on now. That, that really is a miracle, Bob. And of course, the internet and quick access to information and data banks, it's fantastic. This is where we've come so far. And I think the other great um, part of the evolution, when people hear us say the expression non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, the ultimate anti-inflammatory, the ultimate put out the fire medicine is prednisone or steroids. And back in the day, when transports were becoming more common, we were using steroids as one of the anti-rejection drugs. They're not part of the picture anymore. The, the immunosuppressives or the anti-rejection meds are, are much kinder. They're still serious medications, but they're much kinder too, aren't they? Uh, yes, and we have many more of them. Now, steroids are still typically part of the acute 
time period, that is the time around the surgery to prevent rejection. But uh, what we've learned over time is that we can wean these off kind of quickly. It used to be you were on them for as long as you had the kidney transplant. Now they get weaned off over a period of time. Not every center does that. There is variation, but there are more and more options on the types of medicines. And as you're saying, they are kinder uh, and gentler than, uh, than they used to be, but they're still very serious medicines that have to be taken uh, lifelong as long as you have the transplant in you to prevent your body from, uh, from rejecting uh, your own uh, or your new kidney that's in you because it is seen by your body as a foreign, uh, as a foreign object Uh, no different than potentially a a COVID virus or something else until your immune system is quieted down to accept it ultimately. Mm -hmm. Um, Are there any reasons why a person would be not considered for transplantation uh, and or if we can fit it in, um, if a person has had cancer, how long does a person, I guess it depends on the particular cancer, how long do they have to be cancer-free before they're considered uh, appropriate to receive the gift of life. Right. So, uh, so great question. And, uh, the, uh, the idea of cancer, uh, the problem with cancer, uh, is that you, when you immunosuppress somebody with the medicines, we're trying to quiet down their immune system. And yet cancer is a problem of the immune system, as you know, and your audience may or may not know, we are always forming cancer cells or mutations. We talk about with COVID, oh, it mutated. Well, Every living thing mutates as long as it is something that reproduces. It means something went wrong during the reproductive stage, and uh, that means uh, that can lead to cancer. So we we don't want to give, as long as there's any evidence of cancer in somebody, immunosuppressive therapy. So uh, what's very important is we wait a certain amount of time, and that time period can vary with the type of cancer that you have. So breast cancer may be different than colon cancer that was resected. Uh, melanoma mm-hmm. may be different than mm-hmm. certainly than a squamous cell cancer of the skin. Uh, other things sense. that would be uh, other reasons that, that you might not be able to get a, uh, a transplant is if you are non-adherent with your medicines uh, in a serious degree, then, you know, we as a society have to decide whether to take a precious resource like somebody's kidney and put it in somebody who may not then be adherent to their regimen of their anti uh, or immunosuppressant medicine and lose the kidney prematurely. Whereas people who are willing to take their medicines regularly and have a track record of doing that can get many, many years out of their transplant. Similarly, Mm -hmm. age, age is a bit of a uh, subjective thing. Uh, but typically 75 is often the cutoff for places because again of immunosuppression effects and longevity. You, you want the kidney to last in somebody as long as possible. And I Um, think too, one of the things on the list, if I'm right, is if somebody's, uh, has a substance use disorder, we want to try to get that under control before, you know, we want them to be in good shape and, and good psychological shape to to handle it's a big job let's take a little break and we'll be back for a wrap-up with dr bob benz your radio doctor with dr marianne ritchie is presented exclusively by independence blue cross 
Hi, I'm Lisa Thomas-Laurie. If you're on Medicare, I've got great news. Keystone 65 HMO plans from Independence Blue Cross have earned five stars. That's Medicare's highest rating for 2022. Some of these Medicare Advantage plans have no monthly premiums, no deductibles, and no co-pays for primary care visits and some prescription drugs. And all plans include dental, vision, and hearing benefits with no co-pays for routine exams. Medicare's highest rating, Philly's most popular plan. Don't wait. Visit ibxmedicare.com star. Every year, Medicare evaluates plans based on a five-star rating system. Keystone 65 offers HMO plans with a Medicare contract. Enrollment in Keystone 65 Medicare Advantage plans depends on contract renewal. This is a paid endorsement. When you have joint pain, you need a physician who eats, sleeps, and breathes joints. Someone so focused on their specialty, they've written the book on it, literally. You need an exceptionally specialized physician from Rothman Orthopedics. They not only specialize in orthopedics, each Rothman physician only focuses on one area of the body, which means you can have confidence that you can get past the pain and be what you were. Schedule conveniently online at rothmanortho.com. Official orthopedic partner of the Eagles, Phillies, and Sixers. Now, your weekly prescription brought to you by Genentech, the science-driven company that pioneered the biotech industry to transform how we treat the world's most complex health problems. And in our final segment of Your Radio Doctor, we call this segment Your Weekly Prescription, brought to you by Genentech. Bob, this has been a wonderful summary. I wanted to let you talk about one last reason uh, or one last a condition that you consider uh, with transplant patients. Obesity, you mentioned, is an important uh, topic as well. Right, right. So uh, obesity can be a, a reason that somebody also does not get a transplant at many, if not virtually all, uh, uh, kidney centers. Uh, and here we're talking about significantly being overweight. Uh, and the reason is uh, due to uh, worse outcomes in terms of recovering from surgery. The surgery, the kidney is typically put in the, what's called the right pelvis or right lower quadrant area of the abdomen. And, uh, and so it's an area that's potentially got a lot of bacteria, skin folds and things like that can, can make infections happen and what we call dehiscence or the wound coming apart. So, uh, so to anybody who's significantly overweight, um, I would recommend that you get on a serious weight loss program, show your commitment to that, um, and, uh, uh, and make yourself the best candidate possible to have a successful transplant. Sure. It makes the process safer and more likely to be successful. Um, Bob, websites for reading. I, in doing my homework here, kidney.org from the National Kidney Foundation is super. Any other websites you'd send our listeners to? Yes, the uh, the American Association of Kidney Patients (AAKP) uh, is another one you can use. That's really more by lay people, but but by patients themselves, you know. So uh, that is something that uh, that your patients may want to yeah may want to access. Mm-hmm. The American Society of Nephrology is is yet another one. Mm-hmm. So kidney.org. AAKP.org. and then I want to remind our listeners that your brilliant wife one of my idols, Dr. Marie Uberti Benz, with your help, created (laughs) medicalresearch.com, medicalresearch.com, 
and I'll, descri- I'll describe it as a website that reports the latest idol, news idol from- of mine is what I intended to say. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but anyway, it's a website that's used by uh, lay people as well as healthcare providers. And it gives these, gives these two, three minute reads that talk about the latest literature in New England Journal, British Journal. It's, it's really a super source of information that um, uh, keeps people up to date in a, in a user-friendly way. And, and it's remarkable. Over 12,000 interviews that that Marie has done. And I, again, medicalresearch.com along with kidney.org and aakp.org. Bob, I want to thank you for this two-week symposium and walk into the past. I always brag about you as one of my favorite teachers. Um, And I hope you'll come back and join us soon in the near future. But in the meantime, I say, go with the flow. Or as they say in Paris, we, we. You're wonderful, Marianne. Thank you so much for the experience. And now for your real champion. I call this segment Voices of Alzheimer's Disease. The CDC identifies September as World's Alzheimer's Month. This is the most common form of dementia, a condition that affects parts of the brain that control thought, memory, and language, which can seriously diminish a person's ability to carry out daily activities. Recently, I had the privilege to interview Dr. Ronald Peterson, professor of neurology from the Mayo Clinic, a world-renowned researcher and leading expert on the topic of Alzheimer's. He brought very hopeful news about diagnosis and treatment of this challenging diagnosis. And you can hear the show again on odyssey.com, that's A-U-D-A-C-Y.com, or our website, yourradiodoctor.net. You may also recognize the name of the gentleman we're highlighting this week as Your Real Champion. In our show on November 15, 2020, we looked at the world through the eyes of Phil Guttis. We learned that Phil was enjoying a busy, productive, happy life in the beautiful town of New Hope, Pennsylvania, with his husband, Tim, and several pets. For several years, he was a reporter for the New York Times and covered stories on every topic. He had a senior role in communications for the American Civil Liberties Union and the Natural Resources Defense Council. On several occasions, episodes of patchy memory loss were noted by his husband, his sister, and himself. He was then diagnosed with Alzheimer's at the young age of 54. He admits that some people can't tell because, quote, I present well. Well, unlike other forms of dementia in which people remember the past well and have trouble with recent memory, Phil has lost some of the images from the past. He plays a game with family who remind him of stories from the past, and Phil will say, I did that? How cool. Now at age 60, Phil continues to be a very active advocate for Alzheimer's. He writes and speaks extensively for the Alzheimer's Association, both locally and nationally. He's maintained a very impressive online journal called Being Patient, which offers Alzheimer's news, advice, stories, and support. Visit the site at beingpatient.com. In a recent post, Phil reflects on the seemingly widespread disbelief that anyone diagnosed with a cognitive disease can be productive or a contributing member of society. His big news? This past Wednesday, September 21st, he announced the launch of Voices of Alzheimer's, a nonprofit with the mission of empowering people living with or at risk of Alzheimer's and other cognitive illnesses to be 
united by the urgency to drive equitable access to innovation in treatment and care. Voices for Alzheimer's also promotes policies that allow individuals, their families, and healthcare providers to make informed, shared decisions and lead efforts to ensure fair access to research, prevention, diagnosis, and treatment, along with support for family caregivers. Phil recently participated in the national meeting of the Alzheimer's Association International Conference in San Diego, where he met a woman who offers Alzheimer patients Legos as an outlet for expression. He's also been invited to participate in an upcoming conference in Washington, D.C. to talk about the great work of his blog, again, beingpatient.com. We salute you, Phil Guttis, your real champion. Learn more about Voices of Alzheimer's on their website, voicesofad.com. That's Voices of Alzheimer's Disease or voicesofad.com. You can also visit the Alzheimer's Association with their website, alz.org. Thank you for listening to your radio doctor each week on Saturdays. We usually air at 5 p.m., but we started at 6 o'clock today following Penn State football. And of course, we all cheer for the Nittany Lions. Next Saturday, back on at 10 a.m. on Saturday morning. Again, making space for Penn State football. Our topic is suicide prevention and awareness. We are all extremely sad that this has become a more common occurrence So it's especially important to share this information from people who can help so our listeners know they are not alone. A special thank you to our exclusive sponsor, Independence Blue Cross, and for the support of Rothman Orthopedic Institute. Listen to this show again or any of our shows on odyssey.com. That's A-U-D-A-C-Y dot com and search for your radio doctor. So many great news events Rothman Orthopedic Institute is now officially open in Orlando, Florida. Maybe you can plan that elective hip or knee replacement this winter and recuperate in sunny Florida. Visit rothmanortho.com. This coming Thursday, September 29th, the American Cancer Society is holding a summit called Hey Philly, Get Screened at the Philadelphia Downtown Marriott. Learn about plans to increase cancer screenings, especially as we catch up after the pandemic. Website, cancer.org. Think about donating blood. Your gift can save multiple lives. Visit redcross.org. And we end today with two messages. Number one, a very happy birthday wish to someone super special, my brother, my Lewis. And secondly, at this time of anxiety, try to do at least one nice thing a day that requires a little effort. Say good morning and smile when you greet a stranger. Hold the door for the next person. Or say excuse me if you walk in front of someone. These gestures used to be routine. Let your act of courtesy lift a neighbor. Let your kindness be contagious. This is your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, wishing you a happy, healthy, and safe week with the ones you love. And always here to remind you that your health is your wealth. Thanks for listening to your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. To contact Dr. Marianne and to listen to today's show as well as past shows, visit yourradiodoctor.com. This program is paid for by Your Radio Doctor, LLC. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of Your Radio Doctor and their guests and do not reflect the opinions of WPHT or Odyssey. Today's program has been pre recorded.
I'm Lisa Thomas-Laurie. If you're on Medicare, I've got great news. Keystone 65 HMO plans from Independence Blue Cross have earned five stars, Medicare's highest rating for 2022. Some plans have no monthly premiums, no deductibles, and no co-pays for primary care visits and some prescription drugs. Don't wait. Visit ibxmedicare.com slash star. Every year, Medicare evaluates plans based on a five-star rating system. Keystone 65 offers HMO plans with a Medicare contract. Enrollment in Keystone 65 Medicare Advantage plans depends on contract renewal. This is a paid endorsement. 